0: Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy this sermon from Lead Pastor Joe Still. And for more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. Well, good morning. How are we? Good to see you. Glad you're here today. I'm glad to be here too. Hey, um, we are, uh, well, a couple of announcements. Let's do those first. Um, Just a couple of things I want to remind you of. We are... uh, Continuing, and I hope you've participated. If not, maybe maybe next year you'll do it. But I have loved getting the text that Kim set up for us to get each morning with that little two-minute video, so that we could get to know some of our uh, some of the missionaries that we support through our giving Uh, cooperatively. Every time you know you contribute here, some of that goes to support missionaries all around the world and and many on the North American continent. And this past week, we have been praying for our North American missionaries, uh, this focus week of prayer for them. And each morning, we were getting a video, a little two-minute video, uh, of explanation of their ministry. And I just want to encourage you, that just reminds me, to, to encourage you uh, to give to the Annie Armstrong uh, Easter offering. A hundred percent, every dime that comes in for that, goes directly to the field. Uh, There's no administrative overhead cost or anything. It all goes straight to fund the missionaries and the work that they're doing in the field. So I want to encourage you to do that. Uh, You can continue to pray for them. Uh, You can go to our North American Mission Board website, and they have ways that you can get an email every day, Um, uh, just a a missionary to pray for. I encourage you to do that. Great way uh, to support our our mission's efforts that way. Another way that you can support the the work of the mission of uh, River Bluff Church is by inviting some folks to join you next Sunday as we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord. And we're going to do that. We're going to celebrate. Now, before we get to Sunday, we've got uh, another special service that we're doing this Thursday night called our Maundy Thursday Service. If you've never been to it, it's different from every other kind of service we do. We're normally a very celebratory people. Uh, This coming Thursday night is going to be a very reflective service. We're going to do what Jesus commanded his followers to do. And that is we're going to stop. And we're going to remember in a very rich way. The sacrifice that he made on our behalf. And we're going to worship and thank him for that. We're sharing communion together. I encourage you to join us for that. And to uh, maybe encourage some other brothers and sisters to, to join you with that as well. Also I read this week that. Uh, It is not too late to be a part of uh, a work, a ministry of our church called Bringing Hope Home. It's not too late to get in some items uh, to support that work uh, of caring for, um, we're going to call it uh, mothers of unexpected pregnancies. And a way that we support these ladies who have made the decision to keep their children um, and maybe in the midst of some struggle, we support them by providing bags for them to uh, leave the hospital with, uh, some, some great care goods, if you would. And it's not too late. Those aren't going to be packed until the middle of April. And Lindsey, uh, who gives leadership to that ministry, told me it's not too late to uh, participate in that. So um, that also uh, leads me to what we're doing this morning. We are stepping out of our Sermon on the Mount series, and we're stepping into uh, kind of the church calendar, uh, the capital C church calendar of Palm Sunday. And we're going to look at scripture related to that. We're going to look at the gospel um, of, of Luke uh, chapter 19. And I really felt like it was important after the week we kind of had this past week um, that kind of got started with some very tragic event in Nashville, um, the murder of those six innocent lives and kind of the the shaking that it did to our nation once again. Um, and then uh, something that has never happened in the history of the United States, a former president has been indicted, and then, as always happens, bipartisan politics has just piled on um, and just made everything worse um, through division. And uh, w- we just need to come back to the gospel story and to, to the story uh, of, uh, of Jesus in the middle of chaotic weeks like like this, and to remember Uh, kind of what I'll call the sacred landscape as we enter Holy Week and we do this communally with Christians all over uh, the globe and uh, this Palm Sunday and as I've reflected on uh, the scripture that we're going to look at today um, I, I think is kind of a statement of what's going on in our world and that is we live with lots of unmet expectations you know life so often is about expectations you know if you're a parent of a little one you're constantly managing their expectations you know they they want ice cream for every meal um, or candy um, which some days to me doesn't seem like such a bad idea but um, you know you're always having to manage kind of their expectations but uh, life itself is just kind of one expectation after the other uh, you know people people you know graduate from high school expect to go to college sometimes they get to sometimes they don't Uh, People graduating from college expect to get a job. Sometimes that happens quick. Sometimes it doesn't. They expect, you know, once they get the job, maybe to marry and and, and have a family. So life, especially in those transitions, filled with with expectations. I came across um, uh, a a little uh, writing. It was actually uh, an excerpt out of a book, uh, The Image, by a historian named Daniel Burstein. And I want to... uh, just read it to you. It says something about expectation, especially of Americans. He was writing about Americans. He said this. He expect we expect anything and everything. We expect the contradictory and the impossible. We expect compact cars that are spacious. We expect luxurious luxurious cars that are economical. We expect to be rich and charitable. We expect to be powerful and merciful, active and reflective, kind and uh, competitive. We expect to eat And stay thin. I I live with that expectation. Um, We expect to be constantly on the move and ever more neighborly. We expect to go to the church of our choice. And yet we want it to guide us into the power of God. We expect to revere God and to be God. Never have people, he said this, never have people been more the masters of their own environment. Yet never has the people felt more deceived and disappointed. For never has a people expected so much than the world could offer. And though he didn't write it about our day, I think it is uh, kind of prophetic that it just seems to be about the reality and truth uh, of our day. And when I was reading that, I I, I reflected back. I remember there were a lot of people writing as we were kind of at the heat of the pandemic, kind of writing, asking questions. What What does God want to teach us? out of this kind of struggle. What is, it, what is it that God is trying to say to us? What does he, he want us to come to understand? And I think one of the things that God wanted us to understand is that we live with incredible expectations. And they oftentimes go uh, unmet. And that even enters our faith, our journey of following God. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Luke chapter 19. I think I've already said that. We're going to get there in just a moment. But this is one of those biblical accounts From the life of Jesus that shows up in all four Gospels and friends when something shows up multiple times especially from the life of Jesus in all four Gospels we need to pay attention I think we just need to pay a deep attention I'm not saying we should ignore other parts of the Bible please I didn't say that okay but I'm saying we really need to to step into this and to do that you need to kind of understand what was going on in that day Um, it was Passover so the city of Jerusalem had swelled uh, in population multiple times over And it was a kind of a tinderbox that could just explode. uh, People brimming with all kinds of expectations, especially an expectation uh, of Messiah. The, The year, historians tell us, some tell us it's AD 29. There's some debate on that, but AD 29 is kind of where I land. The Apostle Paul would later write about this moment, talking about when the fullness of time came. Time was full right here. And the people, they were ready for a conquering King Messiah. They were, they were looking for that. They were hoping and praying uh, for that to come. And into that chaos, Jesus would ride in on a donkey. And his arrival and the way he did it was unexpected. And that reality of his arrival that way slammed into some unmet expectations. Because Jesus was inaugurating a kind of kingdom... That by the time we get to the end of the week, it looks like nobody really wanted. And a king who would be ultimately rejected. And so there are a couple of things that I hope you take away. And I want to share with you, even before we get into the scripture, I want you to look for today. Just a couple of things as it relates to unmet expectations that you may be living with. And here's the first one. Unmet expectations... Create an opportunity for one of two things: for your frustration to grow, for it to enlarge, or for your faith to emerge. You'll, you'll take when you when you uh, when reality hits your unmet expectations. One of two things are gonna going to happen: in- your frustration is going to enlarge, or your faith will have an opportunity to to emerge. That that will take place, and you have some say in this. I love what Dr. Dallas Willard writes about this idea of reality he said reality is what we run into when we discover that we were wrong I have run into reality more than once in my life my wife will testify to that she bears witness to to that and uh, it, it creates great disappointment sometimes disappointment with God when our expectations of God are unmet so here's another reality about unmet expectations that I see uh, as we walk through the scriptures here in a moment, unmet expectations are an opportunity to learn what is real and true. When our unmet expectations collide with this reality, it, it points to the reality of who God really is. And as followers of Jesus, it is so important for our faith to be rooted and grounded in what's really real, what's really true, other than what we wish. Or what we may think or what we could imagine because that gets us into trouble lots of people who have imagined a god who doesn't he's not the god of the bible for instance you may have heard some of these well that god is a god who makes everybody healthy and god if you follow him he's going to make every every business succeed and god's going to accomplish exactly what you have on your heart and the god he's going to always bless you financially and and god he's always going to let you exist in marital bliss 24 7 365 and god will always prevent evil and pain and abuse in your life if you follow him if you ever lived with one of those as your reality of god my guess is that when you actually hit reality of those things you endured some pain because you were walking in in deception, but with that pain also came a new opportunity, an opportunity for you to walk in truth and to put your faith in a real and, and true God rather than a God of your imagining. And that is the choice of the people that we're going to read about from our account today in in Luke chapter 19. So if you got your Bibles, uh, turn with me. We're going to start reading um, in verse 28. I need to click my glasses together so I can see. Um, it says this verse 28. And when he, being Jesus, had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, now when you read that, just pause there for a moment. When you read that, it almost sounds like they're like the same place with different names. They're not. They're fairly close together, but they're not one in the same. Um, they're, they're, they're different villages, if you would. Bethany is the village uh, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead a short time earlier, some, some say weeks earlier, just weeks earlier, that, uh, and it's about two miles out of Jerusalem, so Jesus goes, uh, he's about to enter Jerusalem, he he's, goes to Bethany, um, and there's this crowd there, I mean... You raise somebody from the dead, a lot of people are going to start following you too, just so you know. okay? I I might try to follow you around a little bit, see what's happening. Um, You're raising people from the dead. And so Jesus has lots of followers. Um, Look back at verse 29. It says, When he drew near to Bethphage of Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a cold tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it, bring it here. If someone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this: the Lord has need of it. Now a lot of you around here, along with me practice a habit called soaping and soaping through the scriptures and it's it's you know it's, uh, an acrostic uh, acronym for Um, S is for scripture O is for the observation you make when you read a passage of scripture A is for application uh, and and P is how to turn that into prayer asking God um, to to walk you through what you've just read in the scriptures I want to give you a little hint about what we just read if you're reading that passage of scripture and you're trying to figure out how do I apply this to your life this passage is not one of those that you want to apply to your life and think oh so that's how it's done so the next time I need a pickup truck to haul something somewhere, I'm just going to go next door to my neighbor's house, walk in his house, grab his keys off the hook, walk out and start his truck. And when he says to me, "What are you doing? Why are you cranking my truck?" You're not going to say to him, "The Lord needs it." That is not proper application of Scripture. Okay, so don't go there with that one. Okay, so you gotta, sometimes you got to be careful. Anyway, Jesus is is coming in. Uh, preparing to come in into town, okay? So let's, let's just keep reading, verse, verse 32. It says, so those who were sent away and found it, just as he told them, and as they were untying the colt, his owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. Now, again, remember, this is recorded in all four Gospels, each Gospel writer uh, the Holy Spirit inspired, but the Holy Spirit allowed them to write it in, in words that were expressed out of their own personalities and experiences at that moment. John's gospel gives us some uh, additional details as well as Matthew. Both of them point back, uh, Luke doesn't, but both of them point back to a fulfillment of scripture that's taking place from the Old Testament. Uh, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, the prophecy of Zechariah were written about 500 years before this event. And in Zechariah 9, 9, we read this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal uh, of a donkey." And if you were to take and read and kind of study the whole prophecy of that Old Testament prophet Zechariah, one of the things you discover is he prophesied the coming of this Messiah king but, and that he would be victorious. But he would be victorious through not through military might, but through humble, sacrificial love. And so the nation of Israel kind of skipped over that prophecy and just went to the prophecies related to a Messiah who would come... With military power because they wanted it so they expected it and they expected their messiah to come to be a strong conqueror to to come in and overthrow the romans who had occupied their nation and they became extremely disappointed and disillusioned with jesus by the end of the week because their expectations had not been met i mean jesus didn't come riding in on a war horse he came riding in on a donkey Now, you can find some other biblical examples uh, of of kings coming, riding in, uh, you know, on on a donkey. Um, But most of the time, kings came in chariots. They came on war horses with armies surrounding them, riding in in power and, and victory. But Jesus, as he always does, turns worldly ways upside down. And he comes as a very humble, humble king. And in their day... Humble kings were an oxymoron. Kind of like humble leaders in the United States. Kind of an oxymoron. It's kind of like jumbo shrimp. Plastic silverware. What is that about? You know? <laughs> Virtual reality. You know, just it's, it's an oxymoron. It, you know, it, it doesn't make sense if you break it down. And that was true of this idea of a humble king. So the first hint... That this Palm Sunday, this triumphal entry, is, is not going to be met with their expectations, just hits very, very quickly. And there's a truth here about Jesus Jesus came as a humble servant, not as a pride filled dictator, like so many earthly leaders try to be. Jesus was this humble leader all throughout his life, and that is who he is today. Jesus expressed that this is not just a moment with him. This is the core of his being. It's how Jesus saw himself. It's how Jesus described himself. Jesus was always giving great invitation to step into a relationship with him. Listen to Matthew chapter 11. Jesus said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Now listen, Jesus is going to tell you about his heart. The core of his being this is jesus self-describing for i am gentle and i am lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light see jesus jesus extended he extended invitations to be in relationship with him not ultimatums jesus was gentle and humble i mean even when you think about jesus encounter in in matthew chapter 19 with the rich young ruler Jesus extends an invitation, and he doesn't coerce, he doesn't try to manipulate that young man, even though that young man left, even though that young man chose not to follow. In his presence, Jesus was humble and gentle. And as you come to Palm Sunday, it's important that you see that Jesus, you know, he's the God that created everything around us out of nothing. He spoke and it exists. He he holds it together by by his thoughts. Everything is. And yet he is humble. He's the humble king. And I think when we're at least momentarily honest and vulnerable about, about the truth, about the God we want, you know, we, we, we might like that, that humble king image when we're interacting with God ourselves, when we, when we need gentleness and forgiveness and, and mercy and kindness. But when we want God to do what we want God to do to others, we want the God of justice. We want the God that's going to right those wrongs and do it right now and get down to business. Take care of the things that we want him to take care. Of. Defend what we want defended. it. We don't necessarily want a humble God. We want a God, you know, not riding a donkey, but but, but coming in as as a warrior. And I think that's reflected in the way we pick our leaders today. I think it shows up, even even in that imagery. You know, people don't, they don't look for humble leaders. They think, you know, a humble leader can't even win a debate. They can't get a word in edgewise. How are they going to get any legislation passed? I really think that is a reflection of what's really going on in, in our hearts. There was a study that was done back in the 1950s, it was repeated in, in 1989. In the 1950s, they asked 10,000 adolescents just one question, and the question was this, do you think you're important, and 12% of the adolescents answered yes. In 1989, 77% said, yes, I'm important. I'm wondering what it would look like if they did a survey, you know, in the age of TikTok and Instagram. You know, how many would say, yes, I'm I'm important. See, we often in our lifetime have kind of a puffed up impression of who, who we are. We don't gravitate towards humility. We're not attracted to it. We're actually more attracted to pride and jesus is humble and gentle and it's important to grab hold of this and to not miss this uh, in this moment on palm sunday because this is a, a truth about jesus i think jesus enters our lives the same way jesus enters jerusalem he enters in humility he enters in this humble gentle way Listen to, to this reality as described by James, the half-brother of Jesus, in James chapter 3, verse 17. He says, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure and peaceable and gentle. It's open to reason. It's full of mercy and good fruits. It's impartial and sincere. This is, friends, this is the God who invites you to lean in close. This is the God when he was wanting to reveal himself to Moses... You know, he, he, he drew him close. He was the God when he spoke to other prophets. He spoke in a, in a whisper. He, he wants us to draw close to him. He wants us to experience his heartbeat. Jesus says, I'm humble, and, and I'm gentle, and I'm kind. Will you receive me as that kind of God? Or do you want a God of your image that you make over that's actually filled with pride? See, that's the question that's confronting the nation of Israel, in Luke chapter 19. And quite frankly, it's a a question that confronts us today. Will we take God as he is, or do we have to fashion him into an image that we have? Friedrich Nietzsche said this. He said, God created us in his image, and we've been returning the favor ever since. You know, it's just a reality. We try to create God the way we want him to be. And so in this event from the life of Jesus, the invitation today is, do you want him? Do you want Jesus, this humble king who will not always meet every expectation that you have? Or are you going to try to hold on to this God that you can imagine that kind of gets done what you want done? That's not the end of the encounter. Well, let's let's kind of press into this a little more to, so that we have a greater understanding here uh, about another expectation that many of us have. Look at verse uh, 36 of Luke 19. It says, and as he rode along, speaking of Jesus, they spread their cloaks on the road now again parallel passages uh, in the gospels uh, matthew chapter 28 uh, 21 verse 8 tells us that most of the crowd spread their cloaks their outer garment on the road others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road some of those were palm branches that's where palm sunday comes from john talks more about that in his account of of this event now the branches and putting them down and and putting their cloaks down for jesus to ride over it was a it was a sign of honor it was a sign of, of, of submission, of humbling yourself and, and welcoming a, a king into your town. And we know this. Uh, you can reference this back in 2 Kings chapter 9 when uh, King Jehu ha- had been anointed and, and appointed and was riding into town. It's one of the ways that the nation of Israel would welcome their king. And so when people are, are, are doing this, what they're saying is we have this expectation that you're going to be the king. Now remember, they're celebrating Passover, and it's that, that great celebration about their deliverance from 400 years of captivity at the hands of the Egyptians, and so there's this mindset, this fervor that's going on. It was a, uh, Passover was this moment in time when God set his people free, and he gave them victory and, and freedom, and Jesus was coming to do that too, but they did not have the kind of eyes they needed, spiritual eyes to see how he was bringing that about let's keep reading verse verse 37 look at this it says so as he was drawing near already on the way to the mount of olives the whole multitude of his disciples now this isn't talking about the 12 this is talking about hundreds and hundreds of people. They began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, talking about the mighty works of Jesus, saying, blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teachers, rebuke your disciples. And he answered them and told them, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. See, these are those same Pharisees that in just a short time, later in the week, would help turn the crowd's cheers into jeers. The, the, these are the same Pharisees that would, I think, come along and point out to the crowd, this is not the king you want. This is not the king you're hoping for. They turned the crowd uh, uh, against Jesus. They, they played on their unmet expectations. But in this moment, they're laying down their cloaks and their branches, symbolizing, they're hoping that he's going to be the king they want. They're, they're declaring... Uh, a psalm psalm 118 that is uh, something that got read pretty much every passover they're quoting it Uh, look at it from psalm 118 this is actually from matthew 21 he quotes it it says and the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting hosanna to the son of david blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord hosanna to the highest and that portion of psalms 118 again is read in in every passover celebration uh, it's, a, it's a song of praise to Yahweh for, for deliverance uh, at, at the Passover. Now, th- this word, has, Hosanna, it basically means God saves. But based on its context, it can either mean God saves or it could be God save us. It can either be a declaration of God as our, our, our saving God or it can be a petition, a heart cry, God save us. It's just depending on the context. Now, the scriptures don't tell us here exactly which way they mean it. Just Joe's opinion. I think it's a declaration. I think they're they're saying, God, you're going to save us. You're going to be the king we want. You're coming into town. You're going to overthrow the Romans. You're going to fulfill our hopes and dreams. You're going to set up your kingdom. We're going to be in charge. Yippee! That's what I think they were declaring when when they were saying Hosanna. And oh my goodness, they're about to be sorely disappointed. Because this isn't what Jesus intended to do. And now we're going to see a collision of expectation and reality. And friends, this is what Jesus continues to do today. See, in this life that you and I are living, Jesus always, always defeats our cosmic enemies. He's already done that, but he doesn't always in this life defeat our earthly adversaries. He always defeats our cosmic enemies, but he hasn't yet defeated all of our earthly adversaries. He's defeated death, the power of sin. Uh, uh, He's defeated evil, but he didn't, you know, unthrone, dethrone. Which word works there? Is it dethrone or unthrone? Pick. (laughs) <laughs> he, he didn't kick the Romans off the throne. We'll go with that, okay? He didn't unseat them from power. And, you know, instead of doing that, Jesus had a better plan. You know what Jesus' plan was? Jesus' plan was try to lead as much of Rome to himself as he could. So that by 300 years later, about 300 years from this moment, Rome as a nation declares that christianity is the state religion basically it became accepted you know a little over 300 years later see jesus's intent was salvation jesus came to save not to kick out that's what jesus was was doing and friends i i if that's ever needed to be focused on and thought about by Christians and churches it is needed today it is needed today to focus on what Jesus came what Jesus said he came to do what the scriptures said Jesus came to do in in John 1 John chapter 3 verse 8 John makes it very very clear it says that the son of god came to destroy the works of the devil That's what Jesus came to do, was to destroy the works of the devil. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, Paul writes about this. He says, for we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this darkness. We wrestle against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Our fight is not with earthly leaders. It's something much larger. Paul also writes to the church at Colossae. And I would encourage you, maybe later this week, to go, go take some moments and reflect on Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. L- listen to it. It, it, it says, and, and you were dead in your trespasses. You. In, in this uncircumcision uh, of your flesh. And in that, God made alive together. You and I. He made us alive together with him being Jesus. He had forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross doing so, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Friends, that's the battle that Jesus came to wage. That's the battle that Jesus won. When John the Baptist was introducing his disciples, his followers, to Jesus for the very first time, we read it about it in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 29. John the Baptist points Jesus out and says, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Friends, we need to sit in that reality. We need to sit in the biblical reality that this is the reason Jesus came. If we don't, we will not deal with the severity of our sin. We will not, we'll, we'll, we'll not press into the magnitude of the victory that Jesus one on the cross we need to set in this this week leading up to the resurrection because that's when the resurrection and all that jesus did on the cross finds its power for life today death is defeated sin is conquered evil is just swallowed up that's what jesus was doing on the cross and in conquering sin he doesn't only provide a path for you and I to get to heaven, he also provides a way for the humanity that God had always intended for us to live out, to be experienced in the here and now. That The the creation that God intended for you and I to be, we can live in that reality now in the kingdom of God. That's the victory that Jesus came and won. That's the, the battle he continues to wage. And Jesus is winning, friends. I know sometimes we look at the world and we think Jesus... It's a losing battle. It is not a losing battle. Jesus is winning and will ultimately conquer. See, we we don't see that because we forget that his first coming was about our cosmic enemies. His second coming is when he's going to take care of our temporal earthly enemies. That's what he's going to do when he comes back. So I don't know if you've been living with, you've been expecting something from Jesus and he just didn't He hadn't delivered it yet, and you don't know what to do with it. But if you're expecting that Jesus is your forgiver, that Jesus can be the restorer of your soul, that that Jesus can actually heal the brokenness in your humanity, he came to do that. That, that's, That's who he is. And he is victorious in all of that. See, he's not this political, military, power-hungry king that they were wanting in that day and so many professed Christians seem to want in this day. Jesus came to fight a bigger enemy, a stronger enemy, the cosmic powers of evil and sin and and death, not not little earthly adversaries. And so here's what I want to challenge you to do. It might be helpful to you to step into the lives of the people in Jerusalem that day, if maybe you wrote down this week a couple of things in this life, maybe your earthly adversaries, and just look at them and think, Jesus, I, I would like for you to take care of these. And when Jesus hasn't taken care of them yet, you might be able to feel what the people in Jesus's day were feeling when their earthly adversaries weren't being defeated the way they wanted. It, it it may be helpful for you to step into that moment. And so we see Jesus rides into town. We see cloaks and branches going down. We see hosanna's. They're going up. And then we read verse 41, Luke 19, verse 41. And when he, speaking of Jesus, when he drew near and saw the city, I mean he's coming into Jerusalem. He sees the city. Look what it says he did. It says he wept over it. Now, sometimes I think we read that and we think, uh, I don't know if you, you were around back in the day when they had this um, kind of a commercial about keeping America clean and there was this Native American sitting on a horse, you know, and he looked at all the filth around him and the trash and he shed a single tear. Anybody remember that commercial? Yeah. Um, I think oftentimes we read this verse and we see Jesus coming into town, riding on a donkey, shedding a single tear that is not the word that's used here the word that's used here in the original language carries it with the meaning of sobbing this is this is loud wailing this is like this is like uncontrollable grief that's what the messiah of the world came in he is he is a weeping warrior that's, that's who Jesus comes in. And Jesus is showing us something about the kind of Messiah that he is. He's showing that he's compassionate. That he sees what's going on in your life when you think he doesn't. And he cares. And he, he knows and he's, he's involved. He's not that bet middler God from a distance. He's right there with you. That's who Jesus is. And that's the... The Jesus that the Bible wants us to wrestle with, wants us to see that he's, he's this Savior who is wiping away his own tears, not wiping out our enemies. That's not what Jesus was doing. That's not what he, he was about. That wasn't his mission. And this, this shows us what I think is a very, very important truth about our Savior here. And it's one other place that our expectations collide with reality, and it's this. In this life... Jesus, he enters our pain, but he doesn't always eliminate our problems. He steps into our pain while not always eliminating all of our problems, not always taking them away. One of the great problems of humanity, and we saw it on full display this past week, is this question of evil and suffering why is there evil and and suffering why does it exist Uh, again thinking about another survey that was done uh, some years back it was a national survey it was just a one question survey and and they asked people if you could ask God one question what would you ask and the the predominant almost overwhelming question one question that people wanted to ask God is why why is there evil and suffering in the world and atheists, they, they like to grab hold of that and think that's the trump card when they play that card, you know, that Christians have no answer for this. And therefore, it disproves, you know, that, that there's a God that, you know, because there's e- evil and suffering. It doesn't disprove God. It just disproves that there's a God who wipes out all evil and suffering already. That's all it disproves. See, in, in many ways, this question uh you know, why does evil and suffering exist that's kind of a bedrock of, of atheism there's a, a 18th century philosopher David Hume kind of a favorite uh, of atheists if you would and one of the things he, he did was he posed these questions he said if God is willing uh, to prevent evil but not able then he's impotent he went on to say if he's able but not willing then he's malevolent and then he asked this question well if he's both willing and able why is there evil so essentially what Hume is suggesting here is that God is all-powerful and all-knowing and therefore there shouldn't be any evil. But friends, I want you to step into this account of Jesus weeping because I think in that, in that picture, that image of our Savior, this Jesus weeping, I think we start to get some answers about this issue of, of evil and suffering in this world. So I want, I want to just kind of share what I think some of the questions that Jesus po- shows us are his answers to the question of evil and suffering. Before I walk through this real quickly, I just want to remind you that um, this idea of evil and suffering was not incompatible with first century Christianity. You know, the first 300 years uh, of Christianity, those Christians suffered horribly painfully, excruciatingly. They they went through much suffering. And so if Christianity and evil and suffering were two incompatible concepts, Christianity would not have spread all over the world like it did in 300 years. It, it, it couldn't ha- have done that. It, just another interesting thought. The Bible, there's not a verse that you can go to and, that says, here's the answer to evil and suffering. Now, it suggests that sin has something to do with it, which, of course, it does. But the Bible just basically takes a stand, yes, there is evil and suffering. It it exists. One day God is going to deal completely with it, but it's just reality right now that Christians need to live in. We need to live in the midst, following God, a God who weeps and who loves us in the midst of it. And so I think the answer, if you want to really know what's the answer, the biblical answer To the question, why is there suffering and and evil in the world? The biblical answer, I think, is the life of Jesus. His life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. That is the answer that the Bible gives to why there's evil and suffering. It's Jesus. See, Jesus deals with this question. One of the first ways that I see Jesus dealing with this question is Jesus understands our suffering firsthand. Jesus himself experienced suffering that most of us will never, ever know. Here's God's word about Jesus' suffering. Paul writes this to the church at Philippi. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 6, he says, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in, in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross see the god who understands suffered he suffered and he didn't just just suffer in an understanding way here's the second reality jesus enters into he enters into your suffering it, it's one of the ways that the incarnation isn't just a one time event Jesus enters with you into your suffering on a continual basis. Psalms 34, 18 tells us that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. One of the last things Jesus said after he gave the great commission to his disciples, before he ascended into heaven, he said, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. He is with us. He enters into our suffering you know, so often what we want Jesus to do is take away the problem of pain, and what Jesus does is he gives us his presence in our pain. That's what he says he will do. He gives us his presence. Third thing that Jesus does, Jesus miraculously uses your suffering. I can't do this for you. Only Jesus can do this for you. Romans chapter 8, verse 28, many of you know it by heart, it tells us that God is is able to make all things, even your suffering, work together for good, for those who love him, who live according to his purposes. God has the ability to miraculously take your suffering and turn it into something good. You can know this, is what the Bible says. And finally, this is really aiming at what we celebrate next week. Jesus, ultimately, he's going to heal all your suffering. He's going to heal every last bit of it. I love the way Joni Erickson Tata writes about this. Um, Some of you may not know her. At the age of 17, uh, she was involved in a diving accident that left her paralyzed from the shoulders down. Um, She's still alive today. She's actually 73 years old. I look it up. In her book, Heaven, Your Real Home, she wrote these words. She's talking about... Christ followers. She says, We ask less of this life because we know full well that more is coming in the next. She says, The art of living with suffering is just the art of readjusting our expectations in the here and now. See, friends, the cross of Jesus stands, you know, at the center point of human history. And on that cross, Jesus declares, God loves you, God is for you, God weeps with you, God suffers with you, and ultimately he's going to redeem all of your suffering, every every single bit of it. So we might at times question God's plan, why he allows us to go through certain things, but we never, ever, 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 ever have to Have to question God's heart. Have to question God's motive. See, we know his heart. He is is good. Even when he doesn't eliminate our problems, he's entered into it with us. He's there with you. This is the weeping Messiah. This is is your Savior. And and so maybe you showed up here today with an expectation that Jesus hasn't yet met in your life. It's an unmet expectation. You wish Jesus would solve that problem for you. But I think think he brought you here today that you would hear him say, I'm just gonna put my arm around you. And I'm gonna weep with you. And I'm gonna walk with you. And when you can't walk anymore, I'm I'm gonna carry you because I am God and I am good and I love you. So friends, just like those on that first Palm Sunday, when our ex you know expectations collide with god reality, we've we've got to face this like the Israelites did that day. You know, they, they saw Jesus on the donkey, they they put the, the branches down, they shed tears, they saw all three of those that are pointing to the, the, the humility of Jesus. The, the the humility that is saying, I'm coming to defeat your cosmic enemies without your earthly ones but i'm also going to enter into your pain and then luke kind of brings this account to kind of a close starting in verse 41 it says and when he drew near and saw the city he wept over it saying would that you even you had known on this day the things that make for peace but now they're hidden for your eyes see jesus wanted to bring peace he wanted to bring wholeness he wanted to bring shalom into their lives he wanted to weave back together All the frayed parts of their broken humanity wanted to put all that back together. But he knew the only way to ultimately do that is through a sacrifice of love. So that's what Jesus comes. But we know that they reject him. Jesus knew he was going to be rejected. Look at verse 43. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. They, they didn't see who was with them. See, Jesus is foretelling what took place a short time later in 70 AD. When the Romans came in and literally destroyed the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. So that one stone was not left upon another. And Jesus said, all of that happened, all of that happened because of the expectations they had blocked them from seeing the Savior that had come, because they did not see the day of their visitation. Will you let that that phrase sink into your heart for a moment? Are you you seeing those moments when Jesus is present with you? Your, Your moments of visitation from the Lord? Those times he's coming to you. See, this is another truth. In our moments of unmet expectation, what God is calling for is God is calling for our faith to rise up. He's calling for our faith to to rise up. In that moment of our unmet expectation colliding with reality that our faith would leap out of our hearts and onto the pages of our lives, that those would be the moments when we would say, I trust you Jesus. I don't I, I can't I, I can't see what's going on completely but Jesus I trust you. In the moments of those unmet expectations God is wanting to as as the as James writes about he's wanting to turn or Peter excuse me writes about he's wanting to turn our faith into purified gold. He wants to refine it. See unmet expectations don't They don't mean that God doesn't exist. They simply mean that the God who exists doesn't meet all of our expectations because a better God exists. A more beautiful God exists. A Savior who is with you exists. He looks like Jesus. That's who God is. And if you accept that, Jesus says, you can become my apprentice in life. You can live in that reality. You can can start worshiping, a donkey riding, weeping, crucified, risen Messiah. And the truth is, every single one of us will do one of two things. We'll either do like the crowd eventually did at the end of the week and shout, crucify, crucify this kind of king. We don't want this humble king. We're looking for something else. We're looking for governments to save us. See, friends, I'm convinced that this, as you come and you encounter the scriptures today, this is a moment for us. This is a moment of visitation, his presence with us. How are you going to respond? How do you respond to this, this humble king? Do you welcome him in? Do you fall at his feet? One of the ways to do that is to let go of expectations that you have so that you can invite in this more beautiful, this more true, this more incredible God who is Jesus. And I want to give you kind of what I'll call three, three homework assignments that maybe will help you do that. Just kind of some maybe expectation-changing actions. First of all, sometime this week, get along with Jesus and just be honest about an expectation or some of your expectations. Some of the places that you currently feel disappointed with him, that he didn't meet your expectations. Name them out loud. You can do it respectfully and humbly, but just be honest with Jesus. Jesus, I thought you were going to take care of this. Then the next thing, don't, don't do the first one if you're not planning to do the second one, okay? The next thing, in that moment, decide Jesus, in the brokenness of this expectation, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you in this one. I'm deciding that I'm going to trust you in this one. And now don't do the first one or the second one without doing this third one. Here's the third one. You say to Jesus, Jesus, I am inviting you to plant kingdom of heaven seeds in my unmet expectation. God, would you bring some of what's up there down here into my expectation so I see you for who you are? God, do your work in my disappointment. Now, friends, what that means is you're going to move forward in love. You're you're going to move forward in worshiping Jesus, this Jesus who rode into Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. He wants to ride into your life today. How are you going to welcome him in this season, this holy week, as we move to celebrate the resurrection? Well, I hope you do it this way. I want to leave you with Psalm, chapter 24, verse 9 and 10. It says this, lift up your heads, O gates. Lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. You've got to lift up those gates of unmet expectations. You've got to lift them up and let the King of glory in. Who's the King of glory? He's the Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. I'm going to ask our worship team to start making their way up here, please. We're going to close today. Uh, worshiping with a song. And in that song, there's going to be a line. And when we get to that line, it'll take us a few moments to get there, but when we get to this line, I want you, if you are wanting to invite and welcome that, that king, that humble king, I want you to sing it. Just sing it out. Pour it out as worship. And this is the line. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Jesus, I... I can't see it right now, but I trust that you're working, that you're that humble king, and I'm inviting you in even when I can't see you meeting my unmet expectations. I'm going to trust you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come in this moment to worship you. We come knowing that we cannot always see you, but we can come by faith trusting that you were with us. We, we walked in here, every one of us, with an unmet expectation. And you're asking us to lay them down at your feet today and trust you to pour heaven into it in your way. To, to be with us in it. To wrap your arms around us. To weep with us in our sorrow. To lift us up and help us. To never forsake us. Even when we don't see it. We come today trusting you, asking you, oh God, plant seeds of your kingdom in the midst of our unmet expectations so that we will passionately follow you in our difficult seasons of life. We come now to worship you now, Jesus. It's in your name we pray.